The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. I would say, you know, one of the really interesting things I've learned over over the last couple of years in this space is, you know, a lot of people that are in, you know, a high-level decision-making role in this industry, if they don't have a lot of skin in the game, there's a propensity to just take the easy path and get the sale and show the sales numbers. And, you know, we have seen how that plays out over the long term. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 6, welcome back. If this is your first time listening, we always roll out the green carpet for any new listeners. Thank you for finding the show. If you found it through a recommendation, if you found it through a search, I'm always fascinated to know how folks are discovering the show. So send me an email, harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. I would love to hear that. This is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. And I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last episode, we spoke to Christos Raftiogiannis, the founder and CEO of City Crop. He joined the show to share his passion for agriculture and how the ag tech industry has been evolving in Greece. We had a really heartfelt conversation. His enthusiasm was infectious. And I think uh, you'll really enjoy that conversation if you want to learn about what's happening abroad. I know we talk a lot about what's happening here in the States and in the UK and other countries are really making their mark in ag tech as well. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Eric Eisel. He is the CEO of Growflux. It's a company that offers automation and cloud technologies aimed at resource efficiency and yield expansion for indoor farms and greenhouses. And today we talk about Eric's Philly roots, his rich experience in design and architecture, wireless engineering, and renewable energy. We definitely geek out a bit on circadian lighting, providing controls for lighting, and his passion for fostering resource efficiency and environmental stewardship in ag tech. I learned a lot in this episode, and I know you will as well. Remember, if you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP so I can read yours out on a future episode. Okay, before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation with Eric, here are a few words from the folks that support this show. 
This episode is brought to you by NetLed. From consultation and technology to services and maintenance, NetLed has the complete package. Whether it's your first vertical farm or you need help scaling an existing operation, NetLed can help. They offer both service and technology business solutions for vegetable and herb producers from pilot phase projects to industrial scale mass production. And with Vera, you have the only true end-to-end turnkey vertical farming solution on the market. Learn more at netled.fi or you can visit their North American Showcase facility in Calgary, Canada. If you'll be attending the Global Produce and Floral Show in Orlando, Florida this October 27th through 29th, then please visit the NetLed booth at the Future Tech Pavilion. The team would love to meet you. So Eric Isley, CEO of GrowFlux, thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Hey, it's great to join you. So what's the last uh, conference you've been at Vertical Farming-wise? Oh, geez. Well, we just got back from Cultivate. Before that, we did Indoor Ag Tech yeah. in Brooklyn. Yeah, I yeah. Think. That was Probably good. the last Vertical Farming one. Yep. That's where we met. Yep. And what's your usual takeaways when you come back home? Do you, How do you decide if uh, a conference visit was productive or worth your time? Well, that's a loaded question. <laughs> we really enjoyed the conference. Some conferences are for generating leads yeah. and, and doing business. Some conferences are more about positioning and building relationships. And so I, I would say this one was a little bit more of the latter yeah. compared to other conferences where we're quite literally taking orders. Yeah. Oh, okay. And this is Cultivate? Yeah, Cultivate would be a little bit more of like the order kind of taking conference. Okay. And I don't think I'm familiar with that one. Where was that? It's in Columbus, Ohio. Okay. It's been there for ages. It's more centered around the greenhouse agriculture space. Yeah. And where's home for you now? Philadelphia. Okay. And were you born and raised there? Yes. Okay. What's something about Philadelphia that, that people don't know about, but they should? Well, specific to this industry, we have, we're very close to Kennett, okay. uh, Pennsylvania. And it's uh, one of the largest centers for controlled environment agriculture in, in the U.S., primarily from the mushroom cultivation industry. There's a pretty significant packing logistics and distribution business that has come about due to around half of all the mushrooms being grown in one county. But you know, today it's, it's really diversified into other perishables on the logistics side and there's uh, a lot of momentum to bring, to really grow indoor vertical farming in this region. What was life like growing up in Philadelphia? Well, I grew up in the suburbs. Okay. Went to college, Drexel University in Philadelphia. Okay. You know, I grew up with an interest in, in horticulture and agriculture. I was a tinkerer. And so most of my interests took me into more into the physics realm and semiconductors, material science. And you know, I think uh, shortly after I left college and started a career in architecture, I kind of looked at what's happening in the industry and decided to kind of take some passions and pull them together and enter the space. Where if, if, you, if I was to ask your, your parents, what were some of the, the projects you were tinkering with when you, <laughs> when you were younger? What would they say? Oh, yeah, I would get in trouble with my mom quite a bit. I, I was into a lot of electrical engineering kind of projects from an early age around middle school. She was always afraid I would burn the house down. I was building lasers and oh wow, uh, building things like, you know, laser activated. Well, yeah, let's just say I was in, in the model rocketry. You don't want to get into this. <laughs> <laughs> I, was yeah. I was a little kid, so I'm like, I'm knocking on my door. 
where were you getting these instructions? Is it, were you just looking up stuff on the web or? Yeah, I mean, in the early days of the internet, I mean, it wasn't that early for the internet, but there was a much fewer resources out there. So, you know, before the college years, you know, bear in mind my freshman year in college, we were, my university was one of the handful that had early access to Facebook. Oh, wow. Uh, so to put that in perspective, that's, yeah. you know, I grew up on the internet pre-Facebook and, you know, and building computers and running, you know, various flavors of Linux and such. And so that's kind of a little bit of where I came from. And back then, you know, most of the information came from just websites, these pretty simple websites. Some of them are still up, actually. I check them out from time to time. And, you know, if it's not that, it's, you know, some pretty dusty books. <laughs> Was there anyone that you remember being an inspiration, either from books you read or or stuff you were looking up, you know, other, other famous tinkerers? Yeah, I was involved in the International Science Engineering Fair as a kid. Pretty early on, started building relationship with uh, some faculty at Drexel University, this, this school I went to. So they kind of started recruiting me in, in, in high school. So, you know, I kind of started getting exposed from like an early age. Yeah, yeah. And I, th I think back, I'm a child of the 80s, so I think back in that time, it was Radio Shack. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, yeah, that, they, you know, they were good if you needed, you know, some supplies or solder or whatever. But back when I was younger, there was a number of websites that you could just buy all these like surplus electronics from. And sometimes you just end up with this box of just random parts, <laughs> unmarked electronic components. And that, so it was always kind of a challenge. When I was a kid, my dad would take me over to, uh, there was this educational store Today, it's an educational store. It's, it's called um, Edmund Scientific, and they, they ran a, a surplus shop, and you could buy, like, old military hardware. Wow. Like, some of the stuff you could buy was just, like, unbelievable. I think they closed that portion down. Yeah. And today, it's just the optics and education division. But, yeah, I was always getting my hands on to, uh, yeah, lots of interesting hardware as a you know, electronics tinkerer back when I was young. Well, kudos to your folks to let you do some of that exploration, I guess, with the only caveat that you don't burn the house down. <laughs> yeah, they were very accommodating. That's nice. So you mentioned the optics and, and obviously the lasers. And I saw early on that you were doing work with LEDs and understanding like the in, how to influence circadian like patterns with, with LEDs. Did you feel that, you know, with the things that you were tinkering in, that that aspect, in, the laser, the optics, that's really what was piquing your attention? Well, yeah, I mean, I always had a pretty intense interest in photonics around, you know, when I was in college, I started working for DuPont, okay, mostly on the processing, purification and testing of high performance OLED materials. These are organic light emitting semiconductors. So they're essentially small plastic like molecules that you can, you know, you can inject print, you could vapor deposit onto a surface and make that pixel yeah. less. So the same technology that's used today in smartphone displays, most predominantly, I was working in the lab and, you know, kind of seeing what it takes to move the needle in some of the leading edge photonics technologies. I mean, we were a team of 500 chemists and engineers within our business unit with substantial investment over many, many years to build these high performing semiconductor materials that efficiently create light. And, you know, for the purpose of displays. 
And so I have, you know, that firsthand experience, you know, being at that bleeding edge, being in this, you know, just a cog in this very large organization. And, you know, we started to engage a little bit of that with Growflux. Yeah. Back in the really early days, Growflux, we were trying to push the formulation of phosphorus cereals to, to actually create combinations of, you know, violet phosphor converted plus green phosphor converted the idea of just mixing the right blend of broad spectrum phosphor converted LEDs for horticulture and deep red LEDs to get the overall aggregate efficiency up as well as maintaining tunability. So that, that was one of the things I was looking at with Proflux, okay. but it's a really tough game to play in as a small company because it's very expensive to obtain the, the phosphor materials themselves. There's a lot of patents around it. It's dominated by a number of companies that have decades of experience in the phosphor space. So, you know, in the really early days of Growflux, we were engineering at the, you know, LED chip level. And so over time, more and more, we've gotten away from that and instead really focused on the wireless IoT and cloud aspects of cultural lighting. Yeah. So that, that was uh, the focus of the, the work you were doing at Kieran Timberlake as well, like just developing and understanding the possibilities with IoT. Well, so Kieran Timberlake is a, is a really fascinating research and architecture firm uh, based here in Philadelphia. They are uh, known for their environmentally conscious and sustainable design, ranging from projects like the United States Embassy in London. And what we do at Kieran Timberlake is they have a full-time research group that is charged with asking and answering questions oftentimes using new tools, tools that are new to architecture. So I have my co-founder here at Growflux. I actually met at Kieran Timberlake. We hired him as an intern to build some wireless sensor networks, mostly using essentially like Zigbee-like wireless tech. And what we were doing is we were monitoring indoor air quality. We were monitoring indoor thermal comfort. We were monitoring the performance of facades, the thermal performance of facades. So we would actually censor various layers of the building envelope. So the building envelope might consist of, you know, a half dozen different materials. And then measuring the performance over time of each layer on each face of the building can give us a picture into how heat is flowing into the building. So we were basically putting certain density of sensors in buildings to the extent that, you know, we, we had to use IoT technologies to actually aggregate and transport all the data. So we, we built completely new tools at, at Kieran Timberlake for monitoring buildings. How many in a typical building, just ballpark estimate, how many sensors are we talking about here? Well, so all commercial buildings have a multitude of sensors. They're mostly based, they're mostly inserted into the HVAC system. Okay. And they're mostly these very high reliability, hardwired sensors that are part of these control loops. At Kieran Timberlake, what we were trying to do is answer questions that required a higher density of sensors that were more rapidly deployed in places where architects needed those sensors. So for example, putting a sensor in a ventilated curtain wall assembly, you know, it's there's advanced facade systems out there. They don't often, they don't always have sensors in them and assessing the performance of these advanced 
a facade system often requires just quickly putting a sensor in it and looking at, you know, nine months of data. So that's the kind of question asking we were engaging with these sensors. We even renovated a an old bottling plant in uh, the Northern Liberties neighborhood of Philadelphia. And we put, God, I think it was like 90 sensors in just the roof. Oh, really? Oh. To understand, yeah. The, as well as, you know, the whole vertical space, it's like a 43 foot high ceiling in the main office space. And so there we're trying to understand, you know, questions around thermal stratification. You know, we had a high performance underfloor ventilation systems. We had a ton of sensors under there. So it was, yeah, we really did some outstanding work in uh, thermal performance and also thermal comfort monitoring. Yeah, it seems like it's one of those things that people take for granted when they're in the building and it's just perfectly climate controlled and they don't realize all the stuff that's happening in the background to, to get it to that point and all the research that's gone into not only understanding what's happening inside the building, but to your point, even the multiple layers of the skin of the building, how that's being studied on a constant basis to see what the impacts of the external environments. And I can already see how this we're starting to lead into this, these conversations about you know greenhouses and, and indoor farming, but it's fascinating. I, it, it looks like, I mean, it sounds like you also in parallel with um, your passion for you know electronics and LEDs and IoT, the architecture thing is interesting too. Is is that something that was also, you know, just a, a, uh, obviously an, an interest for you and a passion for you, just aesthetics and, and design when it comes to architecture? Yeah. I mean, I've always been fascinated by the design profession. And when I had the opportunity to work at one of the top firms that happens to just be in Philly, I mean, I was applying to jobs in Belgium at the time. Oh yeah. Well, and you know, at the time my top pick for jobs was, uh, was, was Kieran Timberlake. And I was uh, lucky enough to spend seven years there. That's great. Some of those formative years of my career, I feel. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the most fascinating things to me about that trajectory moving from architecture and specifically that's architecture of high performing buildings to this space is I've been able to see how this industry is maturing and borrowing practices and concepts from the commercial building space. Yeah. So for example, you know, when I was working in architecture, this concept of measurement and verification became a pretty big deal. The idea that basically you pay engineers to commission the systems within a building when construction is complete and you monitor that And then you do continuous commissioning. So you come back and you look at the data and you say, what needs to be adjusted within the systems? So all those practices were in, you know, the really, you know, formative stages when I was working in architecture. And we're starting to see some of these practices now transfer over into CEA. We're also starting to see some of the professionals uh, transition into this space as well. So that's been really fascinating for us to watch. Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, in these conversations, we talk a lot about what's happening inside the building and all the advancements that are being made, you know, from the hydroponics, to the robotics, to the LEDs, the automation, the climate control. But there seems to be a lot more that, that can also that's available as opportunities for expansion and growth and, and innovation when it comes to thinking about the actual physical building itself 
because that plays a large role in, in you know what happens and what what you need to control. So I think to your point, I think if you're clearer about what's happening outside and to the extent that you can control and monitor that, it feels like you're you can do a better job inside the building once you understand those variables as well. Yeah, yeah, that's often I'm glad you mentioned that because it's often lost on a lot of people in this industry that you know buildings are very complex machines and a building envelope is very complicated. And you know even within architecture there's there's not enough people that really understand building envelopes really well. And so you know when you look at the typical project delivery process for a large indoor cannabis facility a lot of designers essentially assume that as long as it's within the building envelope it's you know those are controlled conditions well at Growflux, we haven't been doing a lot of sensor work lately you know commercially but internally we use a lot of sensors we do a lot of sensing with our own technology and you know we've seen how you know a building envelope can drive thermal gradients within a cultivation space we're very familiar with that and it's something that you know there's really not enough people that are looking at it and accounting for it in the design process. And there's also really just a severe lack of tools as well. So as we start to now move forward in the timeline, let's talk a little bit about how now all these passions and things you're working on are coming together. Now we're introducing another interest, which is which may have been there all along, but horticulture, agriculture, <laughs> CEA, you know, how did that start to, you know, become more on your radar and maybe talk a little bit about your experience starting Glaze as well? Sure. Well, to be clear, I was involved in Glaze in the early days. I did not start Glaze. Okay. So let's see, around, around probably like 2015, I feel there's, you know, a pretty significant increase in the amount of you know, innovation that's, that was kind of happening in the indoor vertical farming space started seeing a little bit more activity around LEDs and greenhouses. And, you know, prior to all of this, I had uh, started and transitioned out of a company that was doing uh, LED lighting control with wireless meshes uh, for the purpose of uh, managing human circadian rhythms in hospitality, commercial spaces, mostly not exactly residential. So we were looking to implement a circadian lighting at scale and uh, got some of the first patents in LED lighting control for human circadian lighting. Just for, I know we can, uh, just for the benefit of the listener and, and just to explain the concept of circadian lighting and circadian rhythms and the importance of it. And, you know, I've been delving a little bit into that as well from the self biohacking perspective, but I'm just curious if you could just kind of give a little, you know, 30 second primer on, on why that's important. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, we've always known that light is a very significant driver for our own biological clocks. But in 2008, some researchers discovered some cells inside the eye that are called, a bit of a mouthful, but they're abbreviated IPRGCs. That's intrinsically photoreceptive retinal ganglion cells. What these cells do is they don't create images. They detect light and they detect specific wavelengths of light. So that is centered on the blue, specifically right around 464 nanometers. It does bleed off into, you know, into violet and into green, but it's most sensitive at blue. And what that does is it triggers a hormonal response that regulates uh, the, the release of uh, serotonin and melatonin that ultimately determine uh, our biological clock throughout the day. And, you know, study after study has shown increased productivity 
better uh, performance in you know, test scores in classroom settings with the right amount of light. Uh, so that is typically very well-lit classrooms, for example. Likewise, many studies are, you know, have shown the relationship of you know, lack of light and seasonal affective disorder. So then you have shift work dysfunction. So you know, the, the science that actually tied this all together really uh, started advancing in the early 2010s. And, you know, and today, you know, on any of your devices, you can set your schedule and your, your screens will adjust. But back when I had started this company called Sumalux, uh, there was, you know, LED technology was in its infancy. People were selling $200 LED light bulbs. We were selling, didn't really have a price, but <laughs> wireless meshed tunable lights back in the 2008, 2009 timeframe. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I think that's helpful. So just to bring you back, you were talking about how you were working on the, the mesh lighting at the time as, and then uh, seeing what was happening in the hospi hospitality space as well. Yeah. So, you know, we had some experience over the years with lighting in, you know, in, in kind of like a hospitality setting and exactly what people need to actually commission these systems. And doing it at scale means that, you know, you're working with, you know, technicians that are removed from you, you know, by layers of businesses. So, you know, you have to start to look at the actual ease of use and the technology that you're using. And, you know, when we were building wireless sensor networks for the architecture space, it was, you know, whether you're using Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or Zigbee, still, you know, very high touch installation process making sure the devices communicate when you're putting them in, even when it's quote unquote plug and play often was, you know, not as, not as straightforward as it really should have been. And so we really started to get an understanding of the level of reliability and how much these systems just have to have a, a completely streamlined installation process where the person installing the equipment and the person using the equipment doesn't need to understand how the wireless works. That's really, really important. So really started to figure that one out around the time I started Growflux. And what I did is I, early on, I, I uh, built a relationship with a European company that really pioneered what I like to consider as like a next generation wireless mesh technology. And that is, that's, you know, it's six lapan built on top of 8215.4. Some technical jargon there, but basically what it means is it's a flavor of wireless networking that is has more in common with your standard, you know, Ethernet and Wi-Fi. Everything gets an IP address okay. uh, than it does with some proprietary protocol that has to talk to you know one device on site to translate its, its addresses. So. Growflux, we started really investing in, in that wireless mesh technology as far back as 2016. It took a long time to get that off the ground and really build out that reliability, especially using sub-gigahertz frequencies to penetrate through you know, concrete walls and things like that. Between the, the vertical farming space and the cannabis industry, we have dealt with everything from you know, installing vertical farms in old historic buildings with like two foot thick masonry walls to communicating through the concrete slabs of grow rooms where the walls of the rooms are divided with metal walls. So you have to go through wow. concrete. And so, 
you know, all of this is really just to collapse the costs and complexity in commissioning automation systems on site using wireless technologies that just work really well. Yeah. Is there any, given all the experiences you've had and, and the examples you just mentioned, is there any environment now at this point that you, you're, you would say you wouldn't be able to, to install a communication system in? Well, I mean, everything has to be tested. So, you know, we don't go out and say we can just do anything. So for example, you know, our wireless access point, that's like our, our mesh manager that controls, you know, Proflex mesh on site, it bridges that mesh connection to the cloud and it maintains network time for all of your lights and all of your lighting controllers. Right now, we tell people that around 200 devices is, is a good number. And the reason for that is, well, there's, there's a couple reasons. One is propagating a lighting schedule out to 200 devices takes a little bit of time because what we do with our wireless mesh is we trade speed for reliability. So in order for us to propagate a wireless, uh, like wirelessly propagate a lighting schedule, like it's not like megabytes of data. So we can go really slow and improve the range penetration, you know, error tolerance and, and ultimately the reliability. But the trade-off is that we don't get a lot of speed. So when we tell people that, you know, we want to limit it to 200 devices per access point. Our access point is $149 device. So they're, they're fairly affordable. And that's really for a better user experience. But we're always improving that. So we're actually getting ready to up that, up that to 500 lights per access point, 1,000 lights per pro access point. So we have, we have two flavors of that access point. And then the other aspect of it is the software. So, you know, you, you can have the, the physical network is very capable but if you're trying to load up a thousand lights on the user interface in, in our app, you know, as we take on bigger and bigger projects, we we're always having to fine tune the app to display more and more stuff. Yeah. So it's been we've been really careful to grow the size of the installations that we uh, support carefully, rather than taking on some really big ones up front and then having to deal with a lot of headache. You know, right now our our sweet spot is. Typically, like we're often doing, you know, 1,200 to 2,000 light installations okay. with our universal dimmer that controls up to 50 lights. It's, it's a plug and play lighting controller. We're starting to look at the 1,000 light installs in our single light controller. That's where we actually have 1,000 wireless devices on one, on one mesh. Okay. So, yeah, it's, you know, we're just kind of taking baby steps so that we always have a good customer experience. We have over now nearly 200 farms globally using our lighting controls. And uh, maintaining that, that reputation for liability is, is really important to us. How much or how many of those installs are you being asked to also coordinate with what they already have existing? Because I imagine you do such a good job with controlling the lighting environment, but there's other factors at play there, right? There's probably automation happening depending how fancy the farm is, you know, with robotics, with, you know, irrigation, <laughs> you know, and so at some point, you know, the, it's helpful monitoring the overall health of the farm and, and how much are you being asked to make sure that everything plays well with what's already existing? Yeah. So we have a number of customers that are using our API to tie our lighting controls into other systems. We have a couple uh, roadmap features underway that will streamline all of that. We often have a lot, we actually have a lot of customers that really just want the lighting system to, uh, to be its own 
network where they can make the adjustments on the fly as needed. I'd say that's that's actually more common than you might imagine. There's a lot of talk of fully automating the entire facility and then using things like AI, but you know, this industry still uses a lot of outdated tech. So what we're doing is we're we're supporting a lot of these initiatives by providing very robust API addressable controls down to every light. So the, the businesses that are able to leverage that are doing it today. But increasingly what we're doing is we're also partnering with other companies okay. through integrations. So that's where our API talks to the API of another company and you don't need to do any programming to make that happen. You just you know click one thing. So that's all, you know, a bit of a, you know, that's kind of the shape of things to come in the next year or so. And I wonder also, I noticed on your site, if I read it correctly, that you made a conscious decision to not manufacture lights anymore, but actually provide the the controls for the lighting. And can you talk a little bit about that decision as well? Yeah. So we started the company making tunable LED grow lights. We made a, a 600 watt top light with far red LEDs and broad spectrum white, blue and deep red and you know, we get really great results. We did some really fascinating work with institutions like Cornell University. It is a really hard business to pull off. So, you know, we got that product fully launched. We got it UL certified. We got all the wet location ratings and such. And just maintaining that global supply chain for all of those components, there was over, I think there was like over 1,200 parts in our light. And, and then just buying LEDs alone is, it's a hyper-competitive space. So meanwhile, when we were making the lights, you know, we were putting our wireless mesh in, we were starting to kick off some sensor integration projects. We had just launched the Grovelux app for iOS and Android and other lighting manufacturers were asking to license our wireless. We were, we had three lighting brands ask to buy us in the really early days and they made it clear that they were going to ax the lights and just stick with the IoT and so we started the, you know, kind of, it actually started out as a joke internally, you know, hey, what if we made a, a dimmer that controls our competitors' lights? And then, you know, as the cost to maintain the supply chain and buy more LEDs many months in advance, as, that, as those costs started mounting and we're competing with like, I mean, we were like competing with like Philips. <laughs> no, yeah, no easy task there. <laughs> you just couldn't sustain that as a startup. So we just... So the, the, the internal joke, hey, what if we made a dimmer that controls our competitors' lights? That became the, the main business plan. Well, that was a smart decision. And I think almost that out-of-the-box thinking, sort of like what, what Google does with their Skunk Works, I imagine, just like no, there's no idea that's too silly to, to put out there. And, and it seemed like it was very prescient because it, it, it was the right decision to make. it. Probably not an easy one to make, too, but I think it was the right one at the time. Oh, no, it felt good. <laughs> Yeah. So how, you know, if you were to describe like an, an, an ideal client for Growflux, who would that be? Well, we work with a couple of different types of customers because, you know, on the one hand, we, we spend a lot of time serving our lighting manufacturer customers who provide our, our wireless controls alongside their lights. On the other hand, we also work more directly with the growers. So that is, you know, providing plug and play controls for often for existing systems or new systems that they're separately procuring. So there's kind of two, two different customer bases for us. 
Is Growflex the, your first stint as CEO? Yeah. I mean, I, I previously found another company, but then we didn't really get it far along enough to say that it was, uh, you know, took that to its, uh, you know, its full life cycle. Yeah, yeah. And how many employees now? Right now, we're, we're a team of three. We're hiring now. That definitely sounds like you're in a, in a growth stage. What's uh, been the most, the, the lear- I guess you would call them learning experiences as you've uh, developed in the role as CEO? Yeah, I would say, you know, one of the really interesting things I've learned over over the last couple of years in this space is, you know, a lot of people that are in, you know, a high level decision-making role in this industry, if they don't have a lot of skin in the game, there's a propensity to just take the easy path and get the sale and show the sales numbers. Yeah. And, you know, we have seen how that plays out over the long term when you're ultimately sacrificing reliability or customer experience. And, you know, we've made incredible investments in really, really difficult technology that takes years to get right. And it's only coming to fruition in the last year or so. So to see that play out and then on the other side of it, watch companies get run into the ground by the CEO that the PE guys put in place is just really fascinating to watch because we're often working pretty closely with the executives at some of these companies. And I'm not only talking about lighting companies, Yeah, talking about other, other tech companies in the sure. vertical farming and CEA space. Who do you look to for inspiration when it comes to leadership? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think for me, who I look to for inspiration is really other founders because it is a really unique circumstance when your passion project for many years is your livelihood and is just your entire existence, really. So yeah, there's uh, I have a, a number of other founder friends that I'm very close to. And you know, I think without that network, I would be much more in the dark, for sure. Yeah, it's something to be said, you know, as a fellow business owner and entrepreneurs tried many things <laughs> that have failed. <laughs> and then I, you know, before getting to the, you know, some of the things that have been working on my end, unless you have a close group of friends whose opinion you trust, who can tell you, you know, what something really is like without, you know, someone who just wants to tell you what they think you need to hear. I think that's really important to keep that network of uh, that sounding board, you know, really active because it helps keep you sane. Because <laughs> otherwise, if you try to just do it all yourself, I think it's, you'd go a little crazy. So I'm wondering now, as you're continuing to grow and, and expand in this space, what is the future of specifically, you know, controls in lighting? Like, what do you see as in terms of innovation? Do you want to do you want Growflux to, to be part of that innovation? Or are you seeing what's happening and just waiting to see how some of those spaces mature before you step into them? Sure. Yeah. So only a few years ago, uh, you know, people looked at cloud technology in the space as something to be suspicious of. But today, most people want remote management of their systems. They want the convenience of cloud connectivity. So that's been a a pretty significant shift over a space of only really about four years. And so, you know, this industry today is really just embracing cloud technologies, whereas other industries are much further along. So, you know, I think what we're going to see in the coming years is a true ecosystem of companies that can 
leverage new technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning at scale yeah. uh, with market uh, leaders. And what we're starting to see is that companies that are the, the best in class at their respective technology are starting to embrace newer technologies and uh, play together within these, these ecosystems. In other industries, we see very rich ecosystems of, of tech companies that work together, and they actually even create app ecosystems between themselves. And so I think a lot of those types of integrations are coming to the space. So we, we have an inside look into you know, what a lot of companies are considering. So I'm really excited about that. Are you familiar with the website Zapier? Vaguely, yes. Yeah, so, so basically it helps connect like, you know, tools and now it's just probably hundreds or thousands of integrations you can make. I'm wondering if there's a Zapier for the ag tech space when you talk about APIs and the ability to, you know, have some of these technologies speak to each other in an intelligent way. And I'm wondering, just thinking out loud, if there's an opportunity for something like that. Yeah, there's actually a company, I forget the name of the company, they just raised a pile of cash a couple months back, Okay, essentially doing that. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for those types of plays for sure. For agriculture, the thing is, what works in, you know, other industries uh, doesn't always work in agriculture. The, the whole buying criteria is totally different. The sales cycle is different. Where people buy is different. So it's going to take on its own very unique shape in this space. But it's for sure, it's definitely coming. So, What's a, a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? Yeah, we ask ourselves a lot of tough questions around product roadmap okay. and, you know, planning out resources. There's so many products and features that we and our customers want to roll out, but we're often, you know, having to straddle maintaining all the systems and customer experience and reliability and availability of our products with, with new product development. So that's uh, often something that's really tough. 2021 was a tough year supply chain wise. So we're just getting out from under that and are now able to focus more on on that new product development. But yeah, we've been asked a lot of tough questions on that front over the last year or so. Can you see the silver lining in 2021 in so much as it helped you rethink things regarding your supply chain that may not have been top of mind at that time for you? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, reinvented our entire supply chain. We've uh, redeveloped a lot of the internal components of our products to eliminate sole source components and things like that. We've changed how we manufacture our products. It's, yeah, it's been, it, it 2021 completely upended how we make our products. That's great. I'm curious, as you attend these conferences, if you find there's, it's important to maintain and develop relationships with not only possible partners and customers in the space, but even someone that may be considered a, you know, a competitor or someone who does something in, in similar space. It feels like it's, you know, from these conversations, I've been doing the, the show for almost two years now, and just, it's still small, you know, from the out, you know, internally, it seems like, you know, there's a lot going on, but from the external viewpoint, you know, it's still, a, you know, a growing industry as well. So I'm, I'm wondering how you think about building, nurturing, cultivating those relationships. Yeah, I mean, we build relationships with a lot of even customers that have competing products to us. You know, we kind of came from the really early days of the vertical farming industry when a lot of companies were, you know, very secretive. And to be honest, like the most secretive ones that just wouldn't really discuss anything, well, they're, all those guys are gone. So, you know, if you're really good at what you do, 
the thing that you do should be really hard to replicate and really hard to pull off. And that's, that's a lot of what we do. So we're, we're very open about discussing, you know, how our technology works, where we're going. And, uh, yeah. And what we found is that it's only really benefited us because, you know, what any one particular company might be working on today might get put on the shelf tomorrow and they may have to reach for a solution that's much closer to deployment. And, uh, with that in mind, that's actually how we've we've done a lot of business. Is we've we've been quite open, yeah, compared to other companies about our timeline and our roadmap, and that's gotten us into some really really interesting projects. That's good, yeah. Keeping that open mind uh, to all sorts of partnerships, and even some that you may not be able to to predict that, that could be coming your way. Just sort of having having that mindset, I think, is helpful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, back when we made lights, we still, you know we're really, uh, you know, cognizant about, you know, keeping really good relationships with the other lighting manufacturers, because like, you know, you never know if you're going to get rolled up with one of them. So, you know, we were, you know, we, we were very cognizant of that back when we made lights and then all of those people became our customers. So yeah, we smart. already knew that, <laughs> when we, you know, like we, it's, you know, we, yeah. So. And, uh, as we get towards the this the latter part of the year, any other conferences on your radar? So yeah, so Resilient Harvests is coming up. Okay. So we're looking forward to that one. And uh, coming off of the weekend, it's like I really put <laughs> yeah. Work, right? I, and before this, I was right on top of our travel schedule, and now I'm <laughs> I'm sorry. I, yeah, I've done three trips in the past three weeks, so I can't feel you. <laughs> yeah, we have a couple of events coming up on our travel schedule. A couple of them are. are Cannabis trade shows. We have Resilient Harvest coming up. Okay. End of October, uh, early November. And uh, of course, in the cannabis space, there's MJ BizCon, which is always a very busy one for us. Okay. Is it one of the bigger ones? MJ BizCon? Yeah. Yeah. So for us, it is because, you know, we're typically exhibiting in a half dozen booths. So we have lighting manufacturers, distributors showing off our products in their, their booths. So we're at the show to support them, but then also to, you know, just maintain relationships with all the other clients as well. So it, it is one of those shows where we actually don't get a booth. Okay. Our own because it's just like, there's just a lot of noise to cut through. Yeah, I'm sure. So as we wrap up, I want to thank you for taking the time to share the story. A lot of it was really fascinating for me, just learning, <laughs> getting a bit of one-on-one on lighting and and and, uh, and its impact on not only circadian rhythms, but also just the ability to which you can control it, I think is something that surprises a lot of people. And it's been fascinating to see how just the, that early interest, that, that early tinkering, <laughs> when you think about the trajectory of your career and, and the decisions you've made, how they've led to you doing now something that seems to be a mix of all your passions together. So, you know, I, 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 it's really inspiring to hear your story and appreciate you sharing it. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Given the the audience here, you know, and then you've seen that some of your peers are, are folks that are not only been guests on there, but also listen to the show. Is there an ask that you have for this specific audience? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say, yes, there is. And that is, you know, we think a lot about, you know, taking practices from other industries that have had to adapt. And what we look to do is we look to borrow successful strategies from adjacent industries, whether it's, you know, factory automation or 
you know, pharma packaging and storage, for example. And so, you know, when you look at the at, at how these systems come together, it's it's often easier to take a successful playbook from an adjacent industry and see what lessons, not exactly like replicate it, yeah. but at least see, you know, which lessons you can learn there. And uh, that's something that we encourage a lot of our partners and customers to think about. And, you know, ultimately, you know, this industry has so much growth ahead of it. And, I, you know, I, I really feel in the coming years and decades that uh, we are going to have to hyperscale and we have to learn from other industries. So definitely. Something that, that I just remembered from the your childhood, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask how many times you've run up this, the Rocky Stairs. As a Philadelphian, I, I always kind of thought it was a little cheesy, the whole... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Rocky thing. Yeah, honestly, I don't think I've ever done it. I mean, I've been on the stairs many times. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. No, it's not. It's funny because <laughs> I, I think we went with uh, my ex-wife to the Dali exhibit at the museum, and I was like, oh, man. And I, you know, as a child growing up watching that movie, I was like... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You feel the need to do it, so. Well, I, <laughs> and I don't. I don't think I've ever done it. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's one of those things. Like, I, I grew up in New York. It's like people ask me how many times you've been to like the Statue of Liberty or like right, the Empire right. State Building. I'm just like uh, <laughs> once. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, they moved that statue. Uh, oh, to they the did. Museum itself. Oh, okay. Which, like, years ago, when that happened. Okay. It, it drove a lot of people nuts. <laughs> Sure. Well, thanks again, Eric. I really had a fun time with this conversation. Uh, Growflux.com for people to learn more. Any other sites uh, you want to direct people to, to connect with you or or the company? Yeah, no, Growflux.com is where you can reach us for sure. Okay. I appreciate it again. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. Thanks for your time. It was fun. Thanks again to Eric for coming on the show and sharing his stories. As always, full show notes available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. I don't take their time lightly. These folks are doing some really important work in this field, and I'm always honored when they can find an hour to spend with me so I could dig in and tell their stories because it's really what lights me up and really what makes this show so special for me and for you, the listener. If you'll be attending the Global Produce and Floral Show in Orlando, Florida, this October 27th through 29th, then please visit the NetLed booth at the Future Tech Pavilion. The team would love to meet you. Thanks to our season six title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. And best of all, as always, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Leave out that last E. Podcast production marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co. As a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Tune in next week for my conversation with Keenan Pinto of Nordetect. We connected at the Indoor AgTech NYC conference and another fascinating in-depth conversation with an up-and-coming company you should be keeping an eye out for in this space. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.